This is the Worth Recovery Podcast, featuring women in addiction. super glad to be back with you today. This is Worth Recovery, a podcast featuring women in sex addiction. I'm Amy. I'm a recovering sex addict, and I've been sober since December 2nd of 2012. Today is episode 29, and this is a continuation of our deep dive into the 12 steps of recovery. We're currently discussing step three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. In our first episode about step three, that was episode 25, we discussed being a decision maker. We are decision makers in our lives. Step three requires us to take responsibility for both our actions and our inactions. I challenged you last time to take an inventory of the actions and inactions in your life and to become a decision maker. In episode 27, we discussed the battle of wills, our will versus God's will how the misuse of self-will was our problem all along, and why we need to give up our will to our higher power, to God. Today, I want to discuss the last part of this step, the care of God. Quick reminder that when I use the word God and talk about God, I'm talking about the higher power that each of us define for ourselves, the higher power of our own understanding with our own definition. I fully recognize that what I call God and how I define God will be different from how you define that for your own life. And that is how it's supposed to be. In this step, we're making a decision to turn our will over to God, but not just for God to play around with or to do whatever he wants with. We are turning our will over to the care of God, the care of God. We're making a decision to turn our will over to a higher power that cares for us, that wants the best for us, that wants us to be happy. We ended last time with a quote from Narcotics Anonymous Step Guide about step three. It explains it this way, quote, It is significant that this step suggests we turn our will and our lives over to the care of the God of our understanding. These words are particularly important, the care of God. By working the third step, we are allowing someone or something to care for us not control us or conduct our lives. This step does not suggest that we become mindless robots with no ability to live our own lives, nor does it allow those of us who find such irresponsibility attractive to indulge such an urge. Instead, we are making a simple decision to change direction, to stop rebelling at the natural and logical flow of events in our lives, to stop wearing ourselves out trying to make everything happen as if we were in charge of the world. We are accepting that a power greater than ourselves will do a better job of caring for our will and our lives than we have. Close quote. This step asks me to turn my will over to the care of God. If I've done my homework in step two and started to really define a higher power of my understanding that works for me, This step is my first concrete evidence that I am going to try and trust my higher power. 
I love the way the NA book describes it. I make a simple decision to change direction, to stop being, and to stop trying to be in charge of the world. I accept that a power greater than myself will do a better job of caring for me and the world than I ever had or ever could. Today, I want to share a few personal examples of the care of God in my own life. These examples are very dear to me. Each one has shown to me how short-sighted I can be and how the things I want sometimes out of my own will are not really what is going to make me happy long term. They show me the bigger vision that God has and how his desire is for me to be happy, to progress, and to move forward. I'm going to share three examples today. The first one is about Steve. In my early acting out years, I met a man online named Steve. I've mentioned him a few times here before. He was one of the first long-term acting out partners I had. We acted out, but it was more than isolated physical events. We were also really good friends and shared several different things, but particularly a passion for live music and performing, which we did together quite often. We were also crisis friends. He helped me through my mom's cancer, my dad's death, my sister moving in with me, my own health problems, and my own career decisions and problems. And I did the same for him. We had a significant emotional bond. After years of episodic contact, crises, and acting out, we lost touch when we each moved to opposite sides of the country. A few years later, though, he contacted me to express his undying love. Our friendship reignited. But I wasn't wanting friendship or acting out this time around. I wanted a real relationship. I wanted to get married and have kids. I wasn't going to waste time. I expressed as much to him and came clean about a few things that I had kept from him. We went forward. We talked about our life together, where we would live, what we would do, the kids that we would have, and of course we talked about sex. I was still very much acting out during that time. After a few months, we planned a trip for me to go see him. I was hoping this would be an engagement trip, and as such, I decided it was time to disclose this relationship to my family. I also wanted to make sure that if he did ask me, that I was willing to say yes, so I prayed about it. I, I'm a really religious person, and marrying someone outside of my faith tradition I knew would cause some major ripples in my family, so I prayed about it a lot not just a little bit, a lot. I remember kneeling by my bed and asking God if this would work out, if it would be okay for us to get married. I sought advice from others I trusted. I talked, I read, I prayed, I wrote. And when all was said and done, I knew I would say yes. Kneeling by my bed one afternoon, I received an answer. It was like words in my head. Amy, it will all be okay. A tangible feeling of peace filled my heart, my head, and my room. It will all be okay. I remember crying out of sheer joy. I was so excited. I was finally going to have the married life that I wanted. I couldn't believe it. It was all going to be okay. I discussed the relationship with my mom and dad. They seemed more accepting than I ever could have imagined. I knew things were really going to work out, that things really were going to be okay. With my limited knowledge and my small view of the world, I had interpreted that answer to mean one thing. I was going to get married. That our relationship was more than just acting out and that I was going to have my happily ever after. All I've ever wanted in my life was to have a family. 
And this was finally coming true for me. That's how you would have interpreted that answer, right? I'm not going crazy here. He called a few days before my trip and told me not to come. That if I did, he wouldn't see me. (laughs) I was devastated, but determined. A few months later, we were back in contact and back to planning a wedding. We planned another trip. This time, he was going to come and see me. About a week before the planned trip, he disclosed to me that he had been lying all along. He was already married and had been married the entire time we had known each other. And he had had two children during that time as well. Of course, they didn't love each other, he said. They slept in different rooms most of the time, blah, blah, blah. All that stupid crap you tell someone to try and justify the fact that you've been lying for eight years. After getting over the initial shock, trying to comprehend all the details and understand what that really meant for us, he still came to visit me. I mean, I had received an answer from God. Everything was going to be okay. That is what I kept repeating and telling myself over and over and over again. Everything was going to be okay. From the moment he got off the plane and I picked him up, nothing was okay. Nothing. Seeing him in person made it all very real. With no more reason to hide his marriage and his kids from me, he took phone calls in the middle of our conversations and activities. Of course he did. They were his family. But it was incredibly painful for me. I'll spare you all the messy, devastating details of the demise of our relationship. But I will say this. That weekend was one of the major catalysts for me finding help, for seeking recovery. It cracked open my prideful heart. If I hadn't seen this coming, what else was I not seeing in my life? I was compelled to be humble, compelled to look at the devastation and the wreckage of what was going on. Recovery has been some of the hardest work I have ever done in my entire life. Months later, maybe even a year later, sitting in my therapist's office, I recounted to him the answer that I had received from my higher power about marrying Steve. Amy, everything will be okay. I told him that I thought it meant that I would marry Steve, have a carload full of kids, love like crazy, and live happily ever after. He looked at me a little confused. So how do you make sense of all of that now, Amy? He asked me. By this time, I had done a lot of work about finding a higher power that worked for me, around defining the God of my understanding that cared for me. I thought for a second, you know, what other answer could God have given me? If he had said yes, and then I went through hell for the next year, I would have been so angry. I would have blamed him for not warning me, for not helping me, for causing so much pain and anguish in my life. But if he had said no, I would have been even angrier. Why was I to be denied a loving husband? Why couldn't I have what I wanted to get married and have kids? Why was I being punished? I probably would have hated God. (laughs) No. In mercy and understanding, God gave me the only answer he could have given me. It will all be okay. In my limited sight and with my limited view of the world, I interpreted that to mean one thing when God really meant something completely different. But you know what? Looking back now, I can say with a grateful heart, it is more than okay. More than okay. And yeah, there was pain and anguish and trial and turmoil. 
But I don't know if I hadn't had that experience, if I would have sought recovery, if I had have, would have run to recovery the way that I did without that catalyst in my life. It is more than okay. And I know that God cares for me. Here's my second example. During that same period of time that I was struggling with Steve, I learned that my dad had stage four brain cancer. It was an incredibly difficult time for so many reasons. It was just short of 10 months from the time he was diagnosed to the time he passed away. During the last two months of his life, I had the privilege of moving home to take care of him during his decline. Now, at that time, I didn't consider it a privilege. Only time and perspective have given me that outlook. But as things got really bad towards the end of his life, I selfishly prayed for one of two things. Either that he would pass now, or that he would miraculously get better. <laughs> it depended on the day. As things wore on, it was getting harder and harder. He was losing his mind, literally. Forgetting things, events, time, people. Not only that, because he was losing his brain function, he was losing his physical abilities to control his muscles. It was horrible. And I couldn't understand why God would leave him on earth to continue in such a state. I kept praying, wanting it to be over, but adding, Thy will be done almost kind of as a token at the end of my prayers. We celebrated his birthday, the last time he ever left his room. A few days later, Christmas came and went, a very difficult day. And a few days later, he quietly slipped away one evening surrounded by his family. As we sorted through insurance, burial plans, financial documents, social security, and retirement paperwork, I was again compelled to be humble. My parents weren't really good with their money, and my dad's cancer expenses had devastated the family. Not only that, my mother had cancer a few years earlier, and that had also taken a toll on the family finances that they hadn't really recovered from. We, my siblings and I, were all incredibly concerned about the financial toll left for my mom to pick up and how we were all going to pay for everything. <laughs> but I should have known that my higher power knew. See, there was this magic window of eight days where my dad needed to pass away. He turned 63 just six days before he passed. I didn't know this, but turning 63 meant my mother would be entitled to his full Social Security death benefit. Had he died at 62 and three quarters, or even 62 and seven eighths, or 62 and 362 days, she would have only received an incredibly small portion of it. But because he was 63, she was going to receive his full benefit. It also meant that she would receive his full retirement payments. Turning 63 secured her financial income for the rest of her life. But at the same time, he also needed to die before the end of the year. Because of his cancer and the other medical problems my mother was facing, their catastrophic insurance had kicked in. They weren't paying a dime for anything, especially the daily hospice care that he was receiving, which care cost nearly $10,000 a day. If he lived beyond the new year, that would mean a new medical year with new deductibles, new liabilities, and more expenses that could have devastated all of us financially. In God's bigger perspective and view of the world and the universe, in his care, he took my dad at the very perfect time, December 30th, to ensure my mother's financial future and not to toll my siblings and I financially for anything into the new year. 
To me, that was the care of God. Again, it wasn't my will. In my will, he would have left weeks earlier. But in infinite mercy and grace, God knew all of those details. I didn't even know all those details until after the fact. But he knew and he saw all of that and took care of my family. That is the care of God. One final example of the care of God in my life. A little bit more recently. Just about a year ago, on July 2nd of last year, I knelt and prayed before I went to work. Things at work were getting really difficult. I had this really prestigious job doing something I absolutely loved for a company that was kind of struggling. I was absolutely in love and totally sold with the idea of what the company could be, but I was struggling with many of the management decisions and particularly with the decisions regarding my department and some of my own work. I was also traveling nearly 100% of the time, which was not good for my addiction or recovery. Being in a different place every week was taking a toll on not only my meeting attendance, my step work, my therapy, but the quality of my sobriety and my recovery. Yet, my attempts to slow down my travel schedule had met some resistance at work. And enticed by the prestige of it all, truth be told, I was having a hard time giving it up. I felt important and admired. It made me feel incredibly valuable and my ego was loving every single minute of it. Yet, I knew in my heart of hearts that things needed to change and I was becoming more and more unhappy. I had applied for a few other jobs but was not seeing results from anything. I had just gotten back from another trip the day before and was totally exhausted, overwhelmed, and angry. I knelt down and prayed about it. I simply said to my higher power, you know who I am and what I need. You know what will be good for me and what will not. I will do whatever you think is right. I had an overwhelming feeling of peace. No words, no direction, just peace. I went to work excited about the day. Things felt different. I spent the morning thinking about how I could probably make this work. I think I could make this job work. I could be more diligent about recovery and just make everything kind of fit together. I was feeling happier about being there as the day went on and my coworkers seemed to notice as well. This was all going to be okay and this was all going to work out. I could tell. I just had this incredibly peaceful feeling. Around 2 p.m. my manager asked to see me. In a matter of minutes, like eight maybe, (laughs) I had lost my job. I was laid off. The instant panic I felt as they were talking was alleviated when they asked me for my company laptop. (laughs) I know that seems crazy, but just six weeks earlier, I had purchased a personal computer. The one I'm using right now to record this podcast, actually. One night, I had this overwhelming feeling that I needed to separate all of my personal and professional documents. Because I traveled so much, my work computer had pretty much become the computer I used for everything. There were recovery journals on there, history of me searching for SA meetings, I'm sure. I had been discreet and I honestly wasn't worried about violating any sort of company policy or about the company finding anything, even my recovery stuff. But it also had a lot of other personal documents on it. My own ideas and thoughts about coaching, about change, about the educators I was working with. It had drafts of strategic planning documents I had written, books I was writing, all sorts of things. The feeling wouldn't leave me. You need to separate your stuff. 
over and over again. It haunted me for the next few days. Finally, I bought a new laptop since my old one was dying, and I spent the next weekend totally 100% separating all of my stuff. I pulled everything off my company computer and cleaned it up. Got rid of my music, pictures, documents, anything that was there. I disconnected all my email accounts Oh, and changed all the settings back to their default. I cleared all the stuff out. I double-checked it. Not that I was afraid of what they would find, because like I said, I really wasn't. But it was nice and slick and clean. For the next five weeks, I traveled with two laptops, wanting to keep everything separate and clean. Now here I was sitting in the company conference room, handing over my laptop. They didn't even give me a chance to open it, not one minute to go through it, just handed it over. The peace that I had felt earlier that morning returned. My higher power knew this was coming and had helped me be prepared. I knew I could walk away not losing any documents and not worried about anything that they might find on that laptop. I got in my car and I drove home, not more than 15 minutes later crazy. Other than the one job I got fired from at 19 because of my acting out, I had never lost a job. I had never been laid off. I always had work when I wanted it, but here I was jobless. Totally crazy. The journey over the last year has not been a straight line, that's for sure. It has been up and down, sideways, forwards, backwards, every way you can think of. There have been moments of clarity and moments of confusion. And on those moments of confusion and frustration and doubt, I've knelt down and said to my higher power, you knew this was going to happen and you gave me peace through the whole thing. That means there must be something out there for me to do. Something out there that you want me to do. Something that is thy will. My life right now is not anything like I would have ever, ever imagined. Never did I think I would be doing a podcast ever, especially one about addiction and recovery. Never did I think that I would be advocating for women in recovery. Never, ever. There are still many times I don't feel like the right person for this job or feel capable of doing what needs to be done, of supporting women, of providing this rally point. My program, my recovery program, is not perfect. Not even close. I struggle, I make mistakes, I trip, and I fall sometimes. But I will say this, whenever I have needed money, something always presented itself. Whenever I have felt discouraged, someone has been there to encourage me. God has cared for me in so many different ways during this last year. If anything, I feel like I have gained a firm knowledge of God's, of God's care in my life, of his knowledge of the intricate details of everything going on for me. When we take this step, when we make this decision to turn our will and our lives over, we will find that God can do more and make more of us than we ever thought or dreamed possible. It's not easy and it takes trust, a lot of trust. But really, what do we have to lose? What did I have to lose? My own self-will had not taken me great places. The decision we are making is that of accepting that a power greater than ourselves will do a better job of caring for our will and our lives than we have. I have found this to be the case in my own life. My higher power has done a much better job caring for me than I was doing on my own. It hasn't always been the way that I wanted. In fact, it has never been the way that I wanted. But in the end, I have been able to see and understand why it needed to be a different way. This isn't easy. 
I shared three cases in my life that had significance for me in helping me see the care of God in my life. I could just as easily give you three examples where I couldn't see that care and I didn't understand. I could give you more examples in my life where I didn't see the care of God at first, where I felt very alone, and even where I still question how things are going to work out. And that is where we're going to pick up next time. How do we actually work this step? How do we build the trust to turn over our will to the care of God? How do we see our own will and the will of God in our lives? Episode 31 will focus on that. It works when I work it. We will talk about making step three work in our lives. Before we close, I wanted to remind you of the new group recovery coaching program now offered by Worth Recovery. This new program called Igniting Recovery is a four-week or 28-day intensive group coaching program. It's designed to help you lay the foundation for your own personal recovery. It is great for those of you that are new to recovery, but also for those of you that have been in recovery for a while and maybe need a tune-up. I know when I went through it and designed it and put it together, it helped me to see the holes that I had in my own program and helped me to make the adjustments I needed for the current challenges that I face. Every day has a specific topic that you will explore and learn about. There's an activity to complete that will help you apply that topic to your life. And then a small presentation that you will give to the group. It's going to require about 60 minutes of work a day. Like I said, it's intensive. There are also optional weekly webinars and Q&A sessions. Our first group, our first course is going to start May 22nd. That's just about 10 days away. There's limited seats available as I want the group to really get to know each other and help support each other. So we're keeping it on the small side. I'm super, super excited about this. All of the details and all the registration information can be found on the website, worthrecovery.com. I really, really hope you'll join us. Just look on the right hand side for the banner that says Igniting Recovery starting May 22nd. As always, ladies, I hope that you remember that no matter what is going on in your life, No matter how far you think you've gone, no matter how you feel in this very moment, no matter whether you do or do not see the care of God in your life, you are worth recovery. You are 100% worth it. I know that. And if you don't, lean on my knowledge until you do. Keep up the fight. I think about you, I pray for you, and I love you. Until next time, Amy. stuff. The mission of Worth Recovery is to dispel shame and build hope in the lives of women struggling with and recovering from sex addiction. I am not associated with any 12-step group, religious organization, or therapeutic clinic. I am an addict sharing my own experiences and recovery.